Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. First of all, as I already told you, the technique that we'll be learning today comes from the teaching of the Buddha, does not come from the traditional Ashtanga yoga lineage. However, my experience as a practitioner of both of these disciplines is that they really support one another. First, uh, I should say that I asked my teacher, my yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce, if he would teach me meditation. And he said that I wasn't ready yet. Um, but he said also that I could sit there, no problem. Um, so it was a little bit like, I'm not going to teach you the technique, but if you want to sit there, do what you want to do, it won't harm you. Right? So I also told him that I was going to Nepal to study meditation um, uh, in the Buddhist tradition. And he kind of gave me his approval on that. Um, to the extent that he thought maybe I would never come back to Mysore. He said, I think maybe you like so much, maybe you'd never come back. <laughs> but I came back and I've been a practitioner of both Ashtanga yoga and traditional um, Vipassana, which is a traditional Buddhist meditation uh, for a, almost the same amount of time. I've been sitting for about 20 years and I've been practicing yoga for 25 years, maybe a little more. Um, so the idea is that... Um, We've been, or I've been sitting at the intersection between these two techniques and really doing some personal investigation on how one supports the other um, and, and how they support one another, really. So first, to understand um, that the idea of sitting is to cultivate, and what is the purpose of sitting? And many people mistake the purpose of meditation, just like they mistake the purpose of asana. You know, some people think, what is the purpose of asana? To get flexible, right? I want to do yoga because I want to stretch. Well, sure, fine, whatever gets you in the door. But the traditional teachings say that, as you know, we talked about this, that asana is a spiritual tool of devotion. We're devoting ourselves to that highest spiritual ideal within ourselves. And we're using asana as a tool to kind of bring our mind back into the body and sort of uh, open those pathways of spiritual awareness. Right? So asana, you might stretch but you also might not, you know, uh, you might uh, just relax the body or you might end up strengthening the body or you may not actually improve the way that we want to improve. That's good for Instagram, you know, for good for the before and after photos over 10 years. Look, I was like this. Now I'm like this. Yes, that's a good advertisement. Right. But you may not have that because that is not the purpose of, of, of sort of the true traditional yoga. Uh, the purpose of a stretching, uh, if it's a stretching program, someone's trying to sell you a stretching program. 
they should absolutely judge on results. But if someone's trying to sell you a spiritual program, first of all, it's so difficult to measure the result. How can you measure? It takes a long time. You know, 10 years later, you might be less flexible and uh, you may uh, look totally different. And all you can say is, well, I'm happier. You know, well, that's amorphous, you know, and doesn't really photograph well, you know, except in some instances. But those have to be very, um, you know thought about before. So if we think about meditation, the biggest thing that people mistake is they think people think meditation will give you a, a, a calm mind, that meditation is only for people when they calm their mind. And the reality of it is that even if you start sitting from now, 20 years later, you will have days when your mind is calm and you'll have days when your mind is not calm. Mm-hmm. You'll have days when the mind feels almost totally still, like the mornings, if you've been to the ocean or a lakefront or something like that, when the water is totally still and you can see, you know, quite clearly down. I don't know if any of you if you went to the beach on the Sunday or something like that. And sometimes in the morning, the water is very clear before the waves start coming in. And, and even if you're up to the neck in the water, especially in the summer, you can see all the way down to your dose. Right? For better or worse, you can see everything that's down there, you know, so no taking off your bathing suit in the... <laughs> Miami ocean and thinking that the waves are going to cover it up, keep the bikinis on. Okay. So the idea here is that sometimes the mind is like that, but what else? Then you flip and sometimes the mind is also choppy waters and people think, oh, I've failed at meditation because my mind is disturbed. Oh no, no. Just like I failed at yoga because I can't do a forward fold. Oh no, no. We've misunderstood the spiritual teaching. This is how we're judging our progress. So what is the purpose of meditation if not to come to a calm mind? And there's a difference between a state of calm and a state of equanimity. And equanimity, we have this word equanimity in in the yoga tradition as well. In Sanskrit, this is called upekshanam. In the Pali language, which is the language that the Buddhist teaching were preserved, it's like a sister language to Sanskrit, it's upeksha. So they both mean the same thing, equanimity. But equanimity is even a hard word in English to understand. So I'm going to say that word, equanimity. What does that mean? You know, and, and so we have to kind of unpack what that means. So if we can look at equanimity, equanimity is not necessarily calm, although sometimes people use those synonymously. There's a slight difference. Um, a calm state uh, is a state like I described when the waters of the mind still and you can peer down deeply. Equanimity is like the vast container, more like the sky than like the ocean. So what is the difference between the sky and the ocean? Well, in the ocean, sometimes the waves are choppy and there's sort of a bowl that's holding this liquid. I mean, a very large bowl, obviously, you know, like the entire Atlantic basin serves as the bowl of the Atlantic Ocean. So then sometimes the bowl, uh, so there's this bowl and there's this liquid, the substance in the bowl, and there's this finite nature to it. And then sometimes it's choppy and sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's choppy over here and clear over here. And sometimes there's a storm, sometimes there's a wave, there's a tsunami, all, th- sorts, all sorts of things happen. So this, this happening exists within the container that is self-identified. So the ocean is a different quality than the sky. When we're talking about equanimity, we're talking about what is often referred to as the cultivation of the sky-like nature of mind. And I'll say that again because it's an important concept, the sky-like nature of mind. So how is the sky different from the ocean? Well, the sky not only reflects the ocean, but it contains, it is a vast container that holds clouds, that holds wind, that holds weather, that is infinite, actually. 
So when we say the sky-like nature of mind, we're referring to the reconceptualization or the representation of mind as an infinite container or the container that holds all things rather than a finite sort of being that experiences moments of choppiness and moments of calm and moments of this and moments of that. It is a futile endeavor to try to still the seas. Understand? We cannot make the waters of the ocean still, but we can observe those moments when the waters of the mind still and see what's there. And if we identify with the finite nature of the choppy water, we'll be running after a false pretense that assumes that we have control over when the mind is one way or another. Instead, if we identify not with the finite nature, but with the infinite nature, then we can change our reference point to the, to the sky-like nature of mind. In other words, we can realize that we are not our thoughts, we are not our bodies, we are not our breath, but we are that container which experiences all, the totality of everything that arises, our thoughts, our emotions, good, bad, neutral, our body sensations which arise, all of these different things. Only the equanimous mind can be sky-like, the equanimous mind is able to observe, oh, look, today, stormy water. It does not change. Look, today, clear water. Well, we can see so deeply, but it stays the same. The non-equanimous mind, when the choppy waters are present, what does it do? Oh, it's so choppy today. I've done something wrong. Is it because yesterday I did this, this, and this? Therefore, today, the waters are choppy. I'm failing at the spiritual path. I better do better next time. This is, we can already see, we've lost our equanimity. So equanimity is there as something transcendent, we could say, of the casual ups and downs. You'll, you'll read this sutra when you study the sutras uh, later, but there's a sutra in Patanjali's teaching that's tato dvandvana bigataha, which means that the yogi's mind is no longer disturbed by dvandvana, the opposing forces. What are the opposing forces? Pleasure, pain, like, dislike, this vacillation between the sort of you know ups and downs of our lives where we're, we're really high and then we're really low and then we crave for the high and we run from the low. But the yogi's mind is what we're training in the Ashtanga path, according to Patanjali, it's the same thing we're training in this teaching of Vipassana, which is the training in equanimity. The equanimous mind, the sky-like nature of mind, not disturbed by what arises. Right? We can also see um, uh, the, the, the notion that it is difficult not to identify with everything we've identified with up until, say, we've come into the spiritual path. Right? How do we not identify with our bodies? It's very difficult. You know? How do we not believe the truth and validity of our thoughts? This is also very difficult. How do we not respond to the saliency and urgency of our emotions? This is very difficult. And this is why we practice. Mm -hmm. Without the rubric of practice, the teachings that are spoken about in all of the sacred scriptures are meaningless. It's just theory. Theory without practice is ungrounded. And theory without practice leads to a dead end according to both the teaching of traditional yoga and the teaching of the Buddha. So historically, when we take a look at one of the most important contributions of the teaching of the Buddha is the universality of practice. So he was sort of the first individual that said, anybody that wants to experience the truth and win their liberation, if they want, if they want that, 
they can get it through practice. Doesn't matter whether you were born in this station of life, in this gender of life, in this socioeconomic position, whether you have this education, that education, you speak this language, that language, you follow this religion or that religion. If you want to know the truth of what you're, of what, who you really are, you just practice and you find the way out. And anything not grounded in practice essentially leads to delusion and in some ways suffering. So we get caught, you could say, in the web of our own mind. You can hear that the theory of the foundational theory of what the teaching of the Buddha presents and what the teaching of yogic practice, according to Patanjali, have a lot of very important similarities. Mm -hmm. Now, the teaching that we'll be working with today is a teaching of awareness called a sati practice. That's S-A-T-I in the transliteration. Sati is uh, the Pali word that's, a, that's a, a sister word to the Sanskrit word smrti. Smrti means, as often translated into English from Sanskrit as memory. Sati is often translated from Pali into English as mindfulness. So see if you can create some kind of a bridge between memory and mindfulness. Does anybody have anything that comes to mind? What quality is similar about memory that is similar about mindfulness? You have any ideas? Anything? What does it take to remember something? Hmm? Thinking and what type of thinking? Reflective. And, and, then, and then if you reflect on something and you remember it, what does the mind do? What do you think? Hmm? So you have to recall something and draw it up into the mind field. You must become present to that. So if you start thinking about for a moment, you could just go through this yourself. Think about the last really good meal you had or something really yummy that you ate recently. Maybe it's not a meal. Maybe, maybe it's like a mango, right? The last I had this mango. Now the mind starts to bring yourself present to the smell the taste, the texture, the experience, or oh, I received it as a gift. And then I cut this mango and then it was so juicy. And then you start to taste it and you see the colors that are there. And then their mind is painting this picture. It stays present to that. So there's this quality of presence and memory that when you are totally mindful of something, you are engrossed in it. And it's that very same quality of mind, which is that quality of mind, which is not slipping from its object of attention which is present in memory and present in mindfulness. And there are numerous ways that we can kind of um, obviously see the difference. Memory is being present to something that happened in the past, right? But mindfulness is being present to what is. And that's the difference, of course. But it's, but it's the same quality of mind um, that's being drawn upon, utilizing, and this is important with mindfulness, and this is sometimes what gets lost in the English translation of the word mindfulness, utilizing the full faculty of your senses. Sometimes when we hear mindfulness, we think about thinking, you know, be mindful about, I'm going to contemplate that. I'm going to ponder over that. I'm going to mull it over. This involves only the mental level. Mindfulness is harnessing the full faculty of your senses, feeling, sensation, hearing, touch, smell, taste, the full faculty of your senses is involved in that quality of mind of total presence. Mm -hmm. So in order for the mind to be focused, just like in our Ashtanga yoga practice, we have breath, body, and mind. This breath, body, and mind are also presented as the three traditional anchors 
or resting points of mindfulness. So the mind can be present on anything, right? So we were just very present to either maybe a real experience of a mango or an imaginatory experience of a mango. Maybe you went with me on imagination. Maybe you haven't had a really good mango in a long time, you know, and we're like, wow, I'd really like one, you know, or you remembered one. Oh, I had one too. That was nice, right? So the mind can go and create these, these sort of things and it can go anywhere, you know? Probably while I've been speaking right now, your mind has darted off to various points, you know? Not necessarily necessarily of your choosing over here thinking of this laundry what am I going to do it you know something like that it just appears I have to go over here later you know oh it's a moon day what does that mean why aren't we practicing weird and then our thoughts just kind of they they have like life of their own you know so the mind can go here and there and here and there and suddenly and maybe you had it already today but if not you probably might experience this while we're doing the meditation together is that all of a sudden what happens the mind we're caught in a dream. I don't know if you've ever found, like playing, a, you suddenly are in a whole sort of like Hollywood movie is up here and you're the main character, of course, right? Winning battles, you know, and facing evils, coming out victorious. And then suddenly, oh, I'm not meditating. I'm, I'm being superwoman. Uh, let me come back to reality now. I'm just sitting here on a cushion. Oh, all right, let's see about that. So the mind does this. And in order to sort of work with that quality of mind, which is going here and there and here and there and here and there, we need to utilize what is called an anchor of mindfulness. So we need to direct the mind focus here. Because if you don't, you're going to be making a movie where you're, you know, casting yourself in one role or another. Usually I said the hero, but we can also cast ourselves over the villain. And when we're doing that, what are we doing when we cast ourselves over the villain? We're usually ruminating on some mistake that we made and beating ourselves up about that. We're just replaying that in our head. Oh, I'm so dumb. Look, I did it again. I'm so dumb. I did it again. In vivid, more vivid detail. And we reconstruct something that becomes a horror movie that we replay over and over again in our mind, consciously and eventually subconsciously. Mm -hmm. So if we do not give the mind an anchor, what will happen? Those old stories, they just continue replaying, 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 replaying. We ruminate on the past. If we're not ruminating on the past, what's the other thing that we do? future we project into the future and is it always positive no sometimes it's positive oh it could be so nice if one day i could you know take a trip to uh, i don't know somebody tell me where you want to go some nice place some hawaii. hawaii oh it could be so nice to go to hawaii wow one day i want to go to hawaii i want to go which island Kauai. that sounds really nice i'm gonna to go to Kauai. no but i heard there's a lot of people there now and it's really expensive and oh gosh, I don't know if I should go anymore. Um, maybe I should find a different island. And then, oh God, last time I took a long flight, it was really awful. Like I, there's a big jet lag between here and Hawaii. And oh, I don't know if I can afford it, man, I'm never going to go. You know, and so then like we, this is our minds, right? We do this, we do this. We project into the future. Sometimes it's positive and it can easily spin to negative. We worry about the future. We project into the future. We ruminate on the past. And if we don't have an anchor or a resting point to train the mind, this is an endless self-perpetuating cycle that weaves what is called the delusion of samsara. Samsara hala hala, right? The poison of conditioned existence. So we're trying to find the way out of that web of delusion. And this is the same philosophical principle that's present when we work with the teaching of meditation. Yes? Okay. So what are our traditional anchors of mindfulness? Mm -hmm. We have anapanasati. Anapanasati. Right? Inflowing, in outgoing, breath, awareness. So awareness of your breath. This is the first traditional anchor of mindfulness. This is said to be the most universal anchor of awareness. 
Number one, um, because can you think about why? why? Why is the breath the most universal anchor of awareness? What do you think? Everybody breathes, exactly. And breath is universal. You can't say, oh, this is a Christian breath. Oh, this is a Buddhist breath. Oh, this is a Muslim breath. Oh, look over here. It's a Baptist breath, you know? So breath is breath. Breath is universal. Breath is non, no religion is associated with breath. Breath is universal. So we have a universal object of attention, which means it's applicable to every single human being that exists on the planet. It's very important. Number two, the breath is the only function of our body, which is both under conscious and subconscious control. So this is an interesting thing that as the, you know, we, we talked about this in relation to uh, the, the, this in, in the Ashtanga yoga teaching about how we can manipulate the state of the mind through that bottom up regulation, right? You'll talk about that a little bit more when you study the vagus nerve. Um, however, when we're working with meditation, uh, we're working to merely observe the breath to create just observation, observation. And sometimes the, you'll see the relationship between breath and mind. Oh, my, you might not even realize the mind, but you may realize my breath is very accelerated right now. It's not good, it's not bad, but is there some state of mind that's related to this that I'm not aware of? Interesting. So the first anchor is anapanasati. The difference between meditation and yoga is that pure observation is what we're cultivating when we practice any sati practice. Sati is sort of, again, this sort of beginning of awareness, this beginning of what is. And the traditional teaching of the Buddha says you must become aware of what is, as it is, period, end of story. If you don't know what it is, as it is, then you start to try to change it and work with it. It's completely ineffective, right? You don't know what your breath is. You've never met your breath. How do you start doing breathing techniques? It's not going to work very well. Think about this as a relationship so that the sati practice is the sort of step one of any relationship. Like you say hello to someone. Hey, how's it going? You, know? you want to get to know that person before you start saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. It's not going to go so well. Imagine you never met someone immediately. You're just like, hi, sit there. Don't say anything. Be really quiet. You know, and I'll come and talk to you later. And like, oh, all right. And maybe unless you go to the doctor's office or something, then you don't really take it. This person's a dictator. I'm getting out of here. You know, then they come out. You're like, go to the movies with me tonight at two o'clock. And you're like, no, you're absolutely under no circumstances. Do I want to be around someone like that. So if you interact with your breath like that, you interact with your body like that, then essentially the, 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 you know, it won't be as effective. So we start off the, the sati practices are very important. It's the foundational meeting point between that container of awareness, which is what we could call the true self and the temporary containers, which we uh, willingly inhabit, which is our breath. And the second anchor of awareness is the body. We can call this kaya sati. Kaya is the word for body. This is the same in Sanskrit and in Pali. So if you have kaya sati, we are aware of the body, body awareness. Mm -hmm. And this again is very similar to our tenant of Tristana, right? Which is breath and body. And now we have the mind. Mind itself is the third anchor of awareness, dhamma sati. And we can call this the mind and the contents of the mind, what's inside the mind. And this includes mind and emotion. We consider this to be the most subtle, most difficult anchor of awareness. And nevertheless, while, we'll, while we maintain our main focus on anapanasati, awareness of body and awareness of mind and emotions are part 
of uh, Anapanasati. So in other words, they're all present at the same time, but we take one as primary functionality. In the traditional teaching of the Buddha, there is Anapanasati or Sati practices, including Kaya Sati, Dhamma Sati. You could even say you have Chitta Sati, right? So Chitta and Dhamma Sati, they're very kind of in the mm, sort of deep communion with each other. Chitta, the word for mind, Dhamma, the word for the contents of the mind, what we experience inside the mind. One is impossible to have without the other. So we have um, uh, the tradition of sati, awareness, mindfulness, rooted in equanimity. The second teaching of the Buddha is the teaching of what's called vipassana, often translated as insight. Um, but however, this insight meditation is something that can only be performed and only be practiced after a firm foundation in sati. So insight is what we can translate, or vipassana is what we consider to be truth-bearing wisdom. That wisdom practice, which is equally balanced between truth and compassion. And this is something which arises after a deep practice of sati, or many, many years, or many, many days spent in practice of sati. Mm -hmm. So when we have something like this that kind of really comes in, we understand that we're going to primarily spend our attention in this practice of working the foundation of sati. In the tradition that I practice, which is called, this is the Vipassana tradition, we normally, it's normally said that you should learn Vipassana for the first time only in a meditation retreat setting, so that you are firm in all of the moral precepts that ground the practice, and that you are 100% established in the sort of foundation of sati. Without that, what can end up happening is that we think we're practicing Vipassana. We feel really frustrated with the sort of directions that were given in Vipassana, and then we quit. So I don't recommend that. We'll primarily focus on the different sati practices, awareness practices, mindful practices, with the goal being to cultivate equanimity. Yes? Now, the third traditional meditation teaching that the Buddha presented was the traditional teaching of metta. And metta is translated uh, or, or is similar to the Sanskrit word maitri. And some of the translations of the state of maitri or metta are loving kindness, compassion, um, sympathetic joy, uh, and this state of friendliness. And we're, we're meant to cultivate metta, and metta is a good thing for everyone to cultivate. So we're going to end our sitting practice with a little bit of metta practice, or we could call this metta bhavana. Metta bhavana is, is not only to try to think about what compassion means, but metta, and this is often why it's called metta bhavana, is to try to cultivate the vibration, right, the active state of how it feels to be in a state of friendliness, to be in a state of compassion. Not only to think about compassion, understand the difference? So if compassion is intellectual, then it's divorced from our state of being. But if compassion is the state, of, it is a state that we seek to embody, then compassion begins to be sort of, you know, how we feel in the moment. So we're essentially kind of moving to change our emotional states at the end. Right? Um, and there are a couple of traditional ways that we do this, and some of it include visualization. Some of it include the very simple act of thinking someone, thinking of someone that you love. And usually, uh, what I what I like to do is preface preface our sit together to see if you could come up with someone that you love, kind of now when you're thinking of them. You know, and 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 sometimes what comes up when we talk about meta is some people say, "Well, I don't have anyone that I love." You know, I kind of I hate everyone including myself. So I don't really want to practice metta. 
Then I usually say, you know, that the, someone, uh, we can include that, that one to be any being or any object that you feel some affinity towards. And it can be a being whom you know personally and intimately, or it can be an object that you relate with intimately and personally and feel gratitude and sort of joy in your life, or it can be something that exists in the theoretical realm, but that brings you a state of compassion. It can also be a, a general group of beings that you find to be agreeable. Uh, for example, kittens, you know, or puppies, or whatever small baby animal you think of as harmless and blameless on the planet. Some people are like, I don't like kittens, they scratch you. I don't like puppies, they pee everywhere. Great. Whatever baby animal that maybe you have never had an interaction with, so you can't come up with something miserable like baby elephants, rescued orphaned baby elephants, something like this. You really, and you really like if, if, if it's useful to come up with your thing before you start. Because at the end of at the end of the sati practice, it's time for metta. Let's call up the image of the being that you love deeply. And if you haven't decided on one in that moment, it may hit you. I don't really love anything. This sucks. And then you can't find the metta, and you just sit there miserable. Miserable, miserable, and then it defeats the purpose. It can be a tree as well. There might be a tree, some tree that's endangered that you really want to protect. It could be the ocean. It could be a dolphin. It could be some sacred place on the planet that, you, that you've been to once that you hope will always be there. It could be, you know, some other galaxy that you think is really pretty that you saw in the picture of a telescope. And what I'm saying is it doesn't, if you don't like humans, pick something else. If you don't like, you know, animals, pick something else. If you don't like yourself, you don't have to include yourself in it, but you need to come up with one, one, one sort of decided factor. If you love your phone, it could be like, I love my phone. My phone is awesome. You just got a new phone. For example, you might love today. It could be meta for the phone. Love my phone. Just got a new phone. Waited five years for this new phone. It rocks. The battery stays on. I just love the phone. May the phone never drop. May the phone always be under Apple care. You know, may the phone always be protected and work, right? This is fine. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.